And probably the best place to have your Bible remain open to is Romans 1, 16 and 17. When you think about a hurricane, you typically remember its name. You might remember a specific point of impact. You might remember its powerful results. It might have reshaped the coastline in some way, or it might have removed things that you thought were once permanent, and now you realize they're not quite so permanent because of the force of the hurricane. Nevertheless, you and I know that there are a number of factors that go into a hurricane coming ashore at a particular place. A a tropical wave floats off of the west coast of Africa. It uh, it enters into some converging winds. These storms begin to circle about. There's a low-pressure system that's created. They're over warm waters, and they just begin to move and move from prevailing winds or move away from high-pressure systems. All of this adds up to... A storm, which eventually, if it reaches a certain speed, gets a name. And then if it lands, we're very mindful of that in Wilmington, uh, that it lands in a very particular location. When, when we think of the, about the Protestant Reformation, we might think of it as a, as a hurricane. And it started before 1517. A number of factors went into the event that we'll talk about in a few minutes. It had the power to rearrange history. It came ashore at a certain location in Europe. It came ashore at a particular time. And if a name was associated with the Protestant Reformation, if you were just going to associate one name, everyone would universally choose Martin Luther. In recognition of Reformation Sunday, I want to do something that's a little unusual and to go back and to to understand the sort of the great cloud of witnesses that we stand on. And we want to look at one of them in Martin Luther today. It's not an overstatement to say that we're sitting here today because of Martin Luther. Now, that's not taking away the sovereignty of God, but we would not be sitting here today if he hadn't come along and been the name of this hurricane that was happening in Europe 500 years ago. Luther's life encourages encourages us to keep looking at Jesus, to be uh, disciples 500 years later, to persevere, to run the race that's marked out for for us in this generation. So let me uh, pray together. Lord, um, as we come and we're aware of people that have come before us, we, we're not aware of others. And uh, in your sovereignty, you bring people at a particular time and place into lives, into countries, into movements. And you have called every disciple here to be a force, a hurricane force in the life of someone else. Our names may not be written about in a history book, but because of the Holy Spirit living in us, we can provide the gospel to those that we live around today. So help us to be encouraged today as we look at one of the lives of your saints in Martin Luther. In Jesus' name, amen. Luther was born in 1483 in a town called Eisleben, 
Germany, and Luther's lifetime spanned the uh, launching of the ship that Christopher Columbus was on. It spanned the lifetime when Michelangelo completed the Sistine Chapel. Although Luther was very removed from these events, he probably would have been very um, little knowledge of what was going on in those places. He was born into a peasant family. His dad was a copper miner. And he lived under some very severe discipline. Although it was normal for the time, Luther recalled this, my mother beat me with a cane until blood came. So this was fairly normal activity in a family in the late 1400s, but nonetheless shaped the life of Martin Luther. Luther grew up in a religious home and he lived under a tremendous fear of the wrath of God. And a common picture that he might have seen, a, what's called a woodcut. There's a you cut out some wood and then you print it onto these pieces of paper would have been this image of Jesus Christ in judgment. So He's up in the clouds and some people are going to hell and some people are coming to heaven. And out of one ear of Christ is a lily, which is a sign of the resurrection. That's why we would have an Easter lily on Easter Sunday. And on the other side is a sword. And Luther would look at this picture and say, how can I gain the lily and how can I avoid the sword? And so this was the picture of Martin Luther's early life. And he wrestled with these concepts of judgment and who God was. Luther's father named Hans had high hopes for Luther. He sent him to school early on. He had a design for Luther's life that Luther would become a lawyer. And... Luther, when he was before his 14th birthday, he was sent to school. And he went away to school, and he was an excellent student. He earned his bachelor's and master's degree in the shortest time allowed by the universities at that point. It was in 1505, at the age of 21, Luther had just begun law school, and he's making his way back to school. He's walking through a severe thunderstorm, and a bolt of lightning strikes near where he was walking and throws him to the ground. And Luther, in this real terror that he was going to die and then he would face this judgment, this wrath of God that he didn't think he could face, he cries out to St. Anne, who is the mother of Mary and the patron saint of minors, and he cries out and he says, Help me, St. Anne. I will become a monk. I wonder if you've ever done that. Not, I will become a monk, but in a moment of desperation, something has happened and you've just made this incredible promise to God that if right now He would save you, you just do whatever He wanted you to do. Well, that was what was Luther was doing. Oh, don't, don't, I just don't want to face your judgment right now. Saint Anne, Mother of Mary, could you come in and intercede on my behalf? Two weeks later, much to Luther's father's disappointment, Luther not understanding the safety of the Gospel, doing the next best thing to try to earn this salvation that he thought he needed to. He becomes a monk. He joins the Augustinian order. He gives away his lute, the little flute that he had that he was proficient in playing. He gives away his books. He gives away all his clothing. And he takes on one item, a black robe which is characteristic of being an Augustinian monk. So when you see a picture of Luther, almost always you see him dressed up in a black, a single black robe. Luther's comment later about this particular event 
He called it a flagrant sin made out of fear and against his father. And then he said, listen, but how much good the merciful Lord has allowed to come of it. You see what's happening? See what kind of encouragement we can gather from this point? Even in sin, how much good because of God's mercy is possible to come out of it? Not that we would celebrate it, but I think this can be a place of encouragement that despite a selfish decision, despite a, a fearful decision, despite a sinful decision, it doesn't leave, your decision doesn't leave God paralyzed. And now He can't do anything. God can bring great things for His kingdom even out of our selfish or sinful decisions. Well, Luther's fear was immense about the wrath of God. His, he was very aware of his own sinfulness. He was very acute. And so with the same intensity that he attacked academics, he attacks the, the holding on or grasping after the, his own salvation. He comes with that same intensity and he's going to use all the means that the church has provided. He's going to study the Bible. He prayed. He fasted. He went without sleep purposefully for long periods of time. He would sit in a room. A bone, a, a bone chilling cold would come over this room in Germany. And he would sit there purposefully without a blanket just to be cold. Hoping that somehow that was going to earn him favor with God. Luther beat himself. Luther regularly attended confession, sometimes for hours. He would come into the confessional and he would confess for hours. And then he would leave and he would just step right outside the confession and say, well, oh, now I'm prideful because of my confession. And he had to walk right back in and confess that sin. And one of his friends, who was his confessor, said to Luther, you don't have any real sins. Go commit a real sin. Then come back and confess. He got so frustrated at listening to Luther just go on and on for hours on his confession. See, Luther couldn't find peace in his own righteousness. This is what he says. My conscience would never give me assurance. But I was always doubting and said, you didn't perform that correctly. You weren't contrite enough. You left that out of your confession. Luther later stated, if anyone could have earned heaven by the life of a monk, it was I. Hear those words from the Apostle Paul just trying to earn his salvation, trying to, to, to be the Pharisee of Pharisees. And then he later finds out the Gospel. The same thing's happening to Luther. Probably the best illustration of his frustration or his futility is when Luther visits Rome in 1510. Luther believed that, you know, uh, as a, a churchman at that point, when you go to Rome, there's all kinds of communions you can take. There's all kinds of relics that you can see. That that's really going to give you an assurance of your salvation. And around 390 maybe A.D., there were some steps that apparently were steps in Jerusalem, ivory steps, 28 steps, brought from Jerusalem to Rome, and these were supposed to be the steps. The Sancta Scala, I think is how you say it. 
And these 28 steps were supposed to be the steps that Jesus himself walked up to be judged by Pontius Pilate. And so now those steps have made it back to Rome. And on the steps, you could see the blood of Christ that has dripped on these steps. And what Luther was instructed is that if you went up these steps on your knees, and every step you stopped and you said the Lord's Prayer, you could free a soul from hell into heaven. Well, you can imagine somebody who's living with this turmoil and torment. He's racing to get to these steps. And he's going up these steps one step at a time on his knees. He's saying the Our Father or the Lord's Prayer. And he gets to the top. He stands up. And he says, who knows if it's really true? You see, he didn't have that assurance. I rose with the conviction that God would not allow himself to be pinned down that way. And so nothing that Luther was reaching for settled that assurance, that need for salvation. And a turning point actually came in 1513 when he was assigned to be the professor of biblical theology in a new seminary, relatively new seminary in Wittenberg. And here he is. He's assigned to be the Bible teacher. And he said to the person who asked him, it'll be the death of me. And in some ways it was, thankfully. The death of him earning his salvation. And that came through him studying the Bible. He started out going through the Psalms and then in 1515, he began to lecture on the book of Romans. And when he came across Romans 1.17, it's not that he hadn't read it before, but he's reading anew. The Holy Spirit is, is helping him see. He comes across Romans 1.17, and it says, For in the gospel a righteousness from God is revealed. So Luther's trying to earn his righteousness, and now he's hearing for the first time that, that in the gospel a righteousness from God is being revealed, not his own righteousness. And this is a righteousness that is by faith. Just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith, not faith in their own works, faith in the righteousness of God. And let me read from Luther's own account, often called the tower experience. He says this. I had indeed been captivated with an extraordinary ardor for the understanding of Paul in the for understanding Paul in the epistle to the Romans yet I raged with a fierce and troubled conscience nevertheless I beat upon Paul at that place most ardently desiring to know what St Paul wanted I want you to hear this and I want you as a as a disciple to understand and take this away from Luther's life. He comes to a text in the Bible and what does it say? I beat on it. I didn't just read it over to get my reading done. I came to a text and I beat on it. I'm going to demand that Paul give up what he's trying to say here. He's, he's digging in and his disciples today in the 21st century, were desperate for people who would get into the Scriptures and beat on the Scriptures and demand that the Scriptures yield up what they're actually meaning. And that's what Martin Luther did. Another example of this is in the fall of 1526, Luther took up the challenge 
of lecturing on the uh, book of Ecclesiastes. And he writes in uh, correspondence to a friend, he says this, Solomon the preacher, this is the, Solomon is the writer of Ecclesiastes, Solomon the preacher is giving me a hard time. As though he begrudged anyone lecturing on him. But he must yield. Do you hear that? Solomon, I'm reading it and it's like he's giving me a hard time, but he must yield. I'm going to beat on Solomon until he yields up these great treasures. And that's one of the great marks of Martin Luther. He came to the text. And the text beat on him as he was beating on it. And it was shaping him and it's still shaping us. Now, imagine just for a moment if Martin Luther had not had this kind of discipline. What he would have missed. What we may have missed. Imagine you as a, as a college student, a high school student, somebody who's in a home or in a career that, that you're beating on the text, allowing it to, to bring up the treasures, what that's offering to people you'd never seen before and possibly people you would never know. Luther is like uh, Jacob. Remember in Genesis, he's wrestling with the angel. He just refuses to let go of the text. And I hope that's true for us. Let me continue with Luther's quote. At last, by the mercy of God, meditating day and night, I gave heed to the context of the words. Namely, in it, the righteousness of God is revealed. As it is written, he through faith is righteous shall live. There I began to understand that the righteousness of God is that by which the righteous lives, which is by a gift of God. That's faith. And this is the meaning The righteousness of God is revealed by the gospel in a passive righteousness. You hear that? The righteousness of God is a passive righteousness. It is not something that you can grab hold of and get for yourself. It's something that's a gift. It's something that is given by the mercy of God. Here I felt I was altogether born again and had entered paradise itself through open gates. There a totally other face of the entire Scripture showed itself to me. See, see what happened, and it didn't just happen in one moment. The Gospel comes out of the Bible for Martin Luther. He kept reading these things and thinking, in order to, to gain my salvation, these are the things I must do. And he reads now and realizes, no, the righteousness of God is a passive righteousness. It's something that comes to you by God in completion. And then once received, then you begin to live for Christ, not the other way around. Justification by faith is the lasting legacy of Martin Luther. He says this, a man cannot be thoroughly humbled until he realizes that his salvation is utterly beyond his own powers, counsels, efforts, will, and works, and depends absolutely on the will, counsel, pleasure, and works of another. That's God. 
as long as one is persuaded that he can make even the smallest contribution to his salvation, he remains self-confident, self-confident and does not utterly despair of himself and so is not humbled before God. This doctrine, justification by faith, is the head and the cornerstone. Without it, the church cannot exist for one hour. If the article of justification is lost, all Christian doctrine is lost at the same time. You see the the importance of what's happening? Here, Martin Luther is living in a place that you have to do these certain things. And when you do these certain things, then you're going to have an assurance of your salvation. And the Gospel is breaking into Martin's life and he's... Christ is saying, no, it's a gift. You can be totally sure of your salvation because you can be totally sure of me, Christ. And so Martin Luther couldn't have known how this rediscovery of the gospel, when we talk about the Reformation, it's it's being reformed back to the Bible, not to a particular creed, not to a particular person. It's reforming the people of God who are always trying to come back to the Bible and say, what is it the Bible has to say? Luther couldn't have known what was going to happen after 1515. On October 31st, the hurricane lands. It comes ashore in 1517 when Luther in reaction to the abuse of selling of indulgences, posts what we now know as the 95 Theses on the Castle Church at Wittenberg. So imagine the Castle Church door being like a big bulletin or announcement area and you would post something up there. And Luther, he's watching this idea of indulgences. If you've taken your high school history class, you'll remember it. I'll speak of it in just a moment. And he said, here are 95 things I have against what's happening in the church. And it's a call to debate. The indulgences were um, a document. A document prepared by the church and paid for by the believer. And so you and I have sin in our lives and there has to be some penalty for that sin. And it has to, you have to do something or you could pay for it in somehow. And so the church is going to issue you a document saying, yes, we recognize that you have done this, but you have paid a certain amount and now the penalty for your sin is wiped away. The time that you might have to spend in purgatory or the time you might have to spend working this sin off now is done. Now, I think it's helpful just to get kind of get us... Give us a picture of what's happening because it's it's so helpful when you think of Martin Luther. And I know that this seems so foreign to us, but this was the way it it was done in churches at this time. A person would come and say, I've definitely done this sin and I need to work it off in some way, but I have some money and so I'm going to give it to the church and the church is going to recognize that as part of my works. I'm gladly giving it to the church. I'd love for the church to use it but now I'm going to get this document to say I don't need to pay that off in some other way. Because what was thought of at the time and and is still thought of in some ways today, although a little differently, that the church or the Pope had what was called a treasury of merit. So you, as a great saint, 
would die, and you don't need all the good works that you've done to get into heaven. You actually have some extra works left over. And those leftover works go into a treasure box. And when now, me as a terrible sinner, I'm a believer, but I'm a terrible sinner, I've got to ask the Pope for you, for, for him, to give you some of your good works to me. Does that make sense? So the Pope is now saying, well, there's some saints that have a lot of extra good works. Paul's no saint, and he needs some of those works to get, it, get by. And I can get some of those by paying a certain price. That was the idea. So I'm getting someone else's merit, and it's being given to me by the Pope, and it's being given to me by having given some money away. What eventually happened was it was thought that if you died, and this is still the Catholic thinking, that you would go to purgatory. Now, this is a place that would get you to heaven, but you've got some sins left over when you die, and somehow you have to pay for those in some way before you get to heaven. And now what could happen in Luther's day is you could pay and get some sins remitted from the, the loved one that's already died. And so a guy named John Tetzel comes to Germany and he's preaching this, quote, Listen to the voices of your dear dead relatives and friends beseeching you and saying, Pity us. We are in dire torment from which you can redeem us for our pittance. And then in this flashy way, he'd finish the sermon and he would say this, As soon as the coin in the coffer rings, the soul from purgatory springs. And this was a little phrase that went around. And so you've got this picture of your mother and she's suffering in purgatory. And if you just take a little pittance out, then her soul would spring from purgatory. Well, now you can see Luther coming across Romans 1.17, realizing the, the freedom of the Gospel, that the righteousness comes from Christ. And it's a passive righteousness. It's not something that we earn. It's not something that we go up on steps on our knees anymore. It's not something that we can pay. And this guy named Tetzel comes in and Luther just explodes and says, no way. And he writes out 95 reasons this can't be true. And so from 1515 to 1521, or actually 1517 to 1521, there's this furious writing going back and forth mostly between Luther and the Catholic Church about what's really right in terms of salvation. And what happened is everything got boiled down to this discussion. Is Luther right or is the Pope right? Is it okay with one, for one man to stand up with the Bible and now stand against everything the church has ever stood for? You see how weighty that is? I mean, in some ways, I do that every week. I stand up with the Bible. But see, back then, no one person could stand up with the Bible and say, I'm going against the whole church. And that's what Luther was doing. And so it caused a tremendous uproar in the kingdom of Rome. And they had to have a meeting. This is what one of the Luther's opponents said. He who does not accept the doctrine of the Church of Rome and the Pontiff of Rome as an infallible rule of faith from which the Holy Scriptures too draw their strength and authority is a heretic. Let me read that again. 
Whoever does not accept the doctrine of the Church of Rome and the Pontiff of Rome as an infallible rule of faith from which the Holy Scriptures, the Holy Scriptures live underneath the Church of Rome, the Holy Scriptures draw their strength and authority from Rome. If you don't believe that, then you're a heretic. You see, the, the, the debate was boiling down to did the church create the word or did the word create the church? Who was going to be in charge? The church or was the word going to be in charge? And thankfully, we can all say Luther understood that God's people have never made God's word. But God's word has always shaped and made God's people. We know that from Genesis 1. God breathed and people came into existence. Genesis 12. God calls Abraham out of nowhere and creates a people for himself. God in Exodus 20 speaks the word and he says, this is the covenant for my people. In Ezekiel chapter 37, you remember this vision that Ezekiel goes to a valley where there's dry bones. And what does God say? Prophesy to these bones, Ezekiel, and say to them, dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. This is the sovereign Lord. Say to these bones, I will make breath enter you and will come to and you will come to life. You see what's happening? The word is always giving life to God's people. God's people are never over and in authority over the word. John 1, 1 in the beginning was the word and the word became flesh. Romans 10. Faith comes from hearing, hearing the word of Christ. So God's people, just knowing that, hearing that, understanding, are always shaped by God's word. We are not shaping God's word as his people. One biographer says this, What is new in Luther is the notion of absolute obedience to the scriptures against any authorities, be they popes or councils. So in 1521, Luther is called to a meeting, at that point called a diet, not not something you uh, go on for health reasons, but a diet, and it's a place called Worms. So the Diet of Worms in 1521, and it's hard for us to imagine now, Luther's 38, all these documents have passed back and forth over the last four years, all kinds of writings, and he comes into this uh, city, Worms, and he comes with a small entourage, and there is Charles V sitting in a room, the Emperor of Rome. All the great governors of cities and provinces around, Roman soldiers all around. They're coming to this great hall, big blocks, candles flickering off the wall and flickering off the faces, and he walks into the middle of this room, and he's standing by himself. And there's a table with all of his writings. And then behind the table is Charles V, the president. All of the authorities around him. And they say, will you recant? And Luther gets nervous. (laughs) Don't you love that about Luther? I mean, wouldn't you be nervous at this particular point? He knows that other people have been called to similar situations and they've basically been killed. Luther says this touches God and His Word. This affects the salvation of souls. I beg you to give me time. One day, they say. 
The next evening, Luther returns, and he gives his now famous response. Unless I am convicted by the testimony of the Holy Scriptures or by evident reason, for I can believe neither Pope nor councils alone, as it is clear that they have erred repeatedly and contradicted themselves, I consider myself convicted by the testimony of the Holy Scripture, which is my basis My conscience is captive to the Word of God. Thus, I cannot and will not recant, recant, because acting against one's conscience is neither safe nor sound. God help me. Luther lived the rest of his life as a heretic, according to the church, and under the threat of death. He left the town. He escaped. He was captured by one of his own friends and made to... Uh, grow a beard to look differently so that he wouldn't be killed. And that's where he began a lot of writing that we have left now. When we, when we think about Martin Luther, at least two things that we're going to remember. Justification by faith alone. It doesn't mean that we as Christians don't need to work out our salvation But we're not working for our salvation. There's a big difference between those two things. And we're standing on Scripture alone. Now there's a lot more that we could say about Luther. We just don't have time to go into. We could talk about his lasting contribution to music. We could talk about his radical understanding of the priesthood of all believers. Luther... There was a big separation between the, the churchmen and the laity. All the, the priests were way up above the poor laity. And so Luther said, no, it's a priesthood of all believers. And he began to even that out that we think of today. He translated the Bible, which was important. He gave four, over 4,000 sermons. We could talk about the controversy over communion and how that's what split the the Lutheran movement and what's known as the Reformed tradition. He had any number of controversial statements and stands that he made politically, some pretty egregious. He had pretty serious health problems throughout his life. But I think just to close and to put a Another kind of face on Luther because we always seem to think of it as sort of academic. At the age of 41, Luther the monk married a runaway nun. How would you like to have been at that wedding? Catherine von Bora. On his invitation, he said something like this uh, to those who were invited. You have to bring a big keg of beer. And if it's not good, you have to drink it all by yourself. That's the great thing about reading Luther. He's got all these great quotes. One of, one of the historians says this, For a thousand years, imagine now, here's the first Protestant marriage. Right? Luther and his wife. And what is this going to now look like? One historian says this, For a thousand years, the single celibate life had been held up as the Christian ideal. Sex, though grudgingly permitted inside of marriage, was not to be enjoyed. And as Jerome, an early church father, declared in the 4th century, anyone who is too passionate a lover with his own wife is himself an adulterer. Then came Luther. 
His teachings, his practices were so radical and long-lasting. Luther elevated marriage and the family and he placed the home at the center of the universe. Luther, within ten years of being married, had six children. Imagine now a monk married and he said, I was so surprised to wake up and see pigtails on my pillow. And now he has six children running around his house. And it said that one day he locked himself in his study and that for three days he was in there and the only reason he came out is because his wife took the hinges off the door and came in herself. Despite Luther being um, caught up in one of the most powerful movements in world history, delivering 4,000 sermons, enormous writing, 60,000 pages, to his credit, a house constantly full of guests, 25 at a time. Students coming by constantly at him. See, what's happened is we have a whole new church. So how do we worship in this church? And how do we do education in this church? And everybody poured into Luther and said, we don't, we've never even seen it. There's no models. Luther, help us. And so he'd sit around these big tables in his houses, in his house and eat and talk about all kinds of things. Noah, children's education, marriage, dogs, all kinds of things. And after he died, his students put together a little book called Table Talk. And these were all the things they could remember that they had heard Luther say. Luther lived under constant threat of his own death. Despite all of those pressures, Luther wrote a children's catechism. And he, as the father in his house, he personally took responsibility for training his own children in the spiritual things of God. If you don't remember anything else about Martin Luther, men, none of you have this life. And despite all of the pressures on his life, he got down on the level of his own children and began to instill in them the truth about God and His Word. He didn't leave it up to his wife. He didn't leave it up to the church. He didn't say, look, I'm under constant threat. I'm building an entire church. I've got sermons to deliver nearly every day. I write a publishable tract every other day. I'm still taking responsibility for my own children. You see, when when Luther finally took off that cloak of earning his own salvation and understanding the freedom that came with the Gospel, then he was free. He was free to be who God made him to be in the Scriptures. And once he discovered that freedom, he wanted to tell everybody. And the most important people were his family. And I'm afraid that now we live in a time that our jobs, our service in the church, our hobbies and habits, men, I'm looking at the men. They've taken you away from your primary responsibility. 
for you to sit down with your children and teach them the truth about the Scriptures is a legacy that the very first father of the Protestant Reformation is something that's lasting, and that's what we want to take with us as well. Let me pray for us. Lord, there were thousands of people involved in this movement that shaped history. We're just recalling the life of one. We're we're remembering the saints that have gone before and we are thankful for Martin Luther and his life. That his life points us to Christ. Even in the midst of a certain death, he would not let go of the truth of the Scriptures. Lord, help us to be captured by that idea today. That he understood the freedom of the Gospel. That it would not come by his own hand. It would come by the hand of God as he passively sat by and received the incredible gift. Lord, that this man took time to write and teach for his children. And the incredible legacy that we're not as clear about what happened there that he left behind for all of us to follow. I pray for the men in this congregation, those who have families, that they would take this call and challenge seriously so that their children could one day stand up for Christ and they may be standing on the shoulders and pray that they're standing on the shoulders of their own fathers. Lord, thank you for the many gifts that you've given us. The Word, your Son, Christ but many other things that now in this time of offering, we just give back what you've given to us. And thanks for what you've done. In Jesus' name, amen.